Fuel. My name is Anthony North. Today we are joined with Lily, who happens to run a meadery up in uh, Roseburg, Oregon. I'm actually really excited to be talking with her right now because she's going to be a very close neighbor to uh, Bloodbeard Mead Hall, which is currently planning to be in Eugene, Oregon. We're still kind of looking at our area right now, but uh, talking with Lily, we've already found that we should be very friendly competitors to each other, which I heavily promote to happen in the mead community. So uh, Lily, please go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone and tell us a little bit more about your meadery. Thanks, Anthony. I really appreciate you having us on today. Uh, my name is Lily Weishberger. I'm the owner of Oren Moore Artisan Meadery in Roseburg, Oregon. Uh, we're a small batch artisan meadery focusing on local and varietal honeys and local fruits from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and you mentioned local honey. I know personally uh, for our meadery, I'm going to be looking at Glory Bee because they are operating uh, outside of, or uh, in Oregon and I have mm -hmm. used their honey in the past. Yeah. Uh, I am a little bit curious though. I mean, obviously up in Oregon, there's a lot of great people that grow both berries, fruits, stuff like that. And because mm -hmm. of that, you could probably get a lot of great variable honey up in that area, I'm sure. Yeah, you definitely can. Um, less than I had originally expected. Uh, it's harder to come by beekeepers that are producing the quantity of honey that we need sometimes. Um, but we've managed to find enough beekeepers that are, are working with us directly um, to provide local honey. Uh, I'm super picky about my honey sourcing. I don't go through packers just because there is always um, variables in that process that I, I don't really trust. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the honey industry, uh, if you look into laws and how, how honey goes in America, it's a little squirrely. Well, um, not just squirrely, it can get a little disgusting on top of that. And I was trying to be kind. <laughs> no, and, well, I, I mean, I've done a enough research and talked <laughs> with enough people. And in fact, Tom Repass has actually been on the podcast in the past. Yeah. And uh, me and him had a really good conversation about how sometimes when you buy honey from the store, it's not really honey. It's just sugar and rice or something along those lines. Yep. 78% of the honey in the grocery store is not honey. It is high fructose corn syrup, rice syrup, um, wheat syrup, beet syrup out of China or India. Uh, they bring it into the country, they repack it, they stick an American honey label on it and voila, honey. It's not honey. Right. And I mean, honest, <laughs> honestly, to me, I think that conversation is something that is really important for me makers to understand, which is why yeah. I don't care about talking yeah. about it. I think yeah. it's something important that people should know. Right. I work uh, very closely with Amina Harris down at the Bee and Pollination Center at UC Davis. And uh, if you're ever wanting to talk to somebody who is just an absolute font of knowledge around the honey industry in the U.S., um, she is a great resource. Um, and then she's also the one that's uh, piloted the meat program for, for UC Davis. Um, so, Right. And I know personally in the near future, I'm looking at taking some of the UC Davis classes myself. I mean, I've learned a lot already from some of the pros talking with them. And I mean, uh, I've actually personally talked with Robert Ratcliffe, uh, Billy, John Opgard. I've had conversations with Carvin Wilson and I mean mm -hmm. these are all people who I personally have come to heavily respect yeah they're great people good and, folk yeah and there's some really awesome folk in the industry you know a lot of knowledge uh, out there I will say some people are really adamant about being stuck in their ways 
but they're that there's way. always gonna be that you know? <laughs> but they're that way for a reason which is yeah. that their mead is award-winning mead and mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't hurt to listen to some of the advice they're saying rather than trying yep. to completely ignore it altogether. Yeah. yep no i absolutely agree i'm of the mindset that learn from everybody that you come across you know filter through see what works for you, mm -hmm. you and know. i mean the rest, you know and i mean if I have something I could say to a new mead maker, it would definitely be, it's going to take you time to learn your style, but yeah. don't be afraid to experiment and play around and figure out what works for you because there's exactly. so many different methods out there. I know personally, yeah. I use Tosna, which I know some <laughs> mead makers don't, yep. but I will say for me, I found a drastic improvement from the first time I started using it. I have to completely agree. Um, it's some, it's a protocol that we use as well. Uh, slightly, we, we switch it up a little bit, um, but it's the same kind of concept. And, mm. and most of the meat makers I know, you know, start with Tosna and then kind of, you know, will adjust things just slightly for their own product protocols, but the same, same idea at the heart of it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it's really one of the things I recommend when the movie maker comes and talks to me, you know, staggered nutrient addition, temperature control, um, your yeast choice is so important. You know, those are the top, mm. top three things I look at. Right. You, know, for uh, you mentioned uh, temperature control at mm -hmm. the homebrew level on my end. I know not everybody has this yeah. room to do it, but what I do for temperature controls I actually have a lizard uh, heat heater temperature control that I have hooked up to a deep freezer and <laughs> I have a heat lamp inside mm -hmm. of that deep freezer and I have it set to the temperature that I want to keep the yeast at and that very has good. worked very well for me I nice. actually learned that method uh, I was in Quaff, which is a homebrew club out in San mm -hmm. Diego Mm -hmm. And uh, a friend of mine named Lawrence, me and him actually did a uh, braggot together. And while we were working on the braggot, I learned that method from him. I taught him a couple yeah. methods for mead. And now he's actually yeah. working on making mead himself. He mostly just brewed beer and cider. But yeah. because that partnership worked so well with us, he actually decided to start doing mead as well. And I'm really happy that he did because to me, getting more people involved in the mead industry is something I am really excited to do and right honestly. and I, I totally agree it's why i don't worry about your work moving up here it's like when i got into the industry in oregon there were you know five or six meteries in the state mm -hmm. well we're down to like three you know maybe four i mean there's not very many we we lost uh three major meteries in the last two years right um, right and i mean it's, it's like so I, I feel like the more good mead there is in the world, the better it is for everybody in the industry. Right. You know, the I more mean, we can change the perception um, from, you know, the old days of somebody's funky homebrew and super, super overly sweet, you know, uh, commercial meads to a more refined uh, product. I think it's it's really good for all of us. Right. Know? And I mean, there there definitely is that conversation that a lot of people like to have about doing it the old school way. But if you like, I, I'm actually part Scandinavian, and then the reason I got into making mead was to trace my heritage. That's actually why I got I into it. I can totally appreciate that. I'm Celtic and Norse as well, and I, uh, I'm most, part of what got me into it. I'm mostly Irish, but there's a tiny yeah. little bit of Scandinavian in there too, and yeah. I'm I'm more proud of the Scandinavian than 
than the Irish, but I still <laughs> definitely appreciate my Irish ancestors. Yeah, I totally get it. But yeah. what a lot of people don't understand about the old ancient methods of mead is if you're really going to talk about what would be considered a traditional, and I'm putting quotes there as I say thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is a conversation. I And I do the same thing, a traditional, right? So Because... If you're really yeah. going to talk about that, you have to understand Vikings would put the blood of their enemies in meat. They would put <laughs> mushrooms so that they could they talk to... They would put whatever to... was on hand. Literally yeah. everything, including the kitchen sink, would go yeah. into their meat. Yeah, and, and my, they my didn't argument have... on that... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, they didn't have the sterilization methods that we have now. They didn't have no. the scientific knowledge that we have no. now. And right? don't get me wrong, if you want to make that old school traditional mead, that's great. Good on you for doing it. I appreciate you taking the time to do it for the heritage aspect of it. However, yeah. understand that as science has grown, knowledge of yeast has grown, and so on, it's incredibly important to also take that into consideration and understand that, yes, you could definitely easily make that ancient mead but you should also look at these modern methods to make a better mead absolutely and we have something we really try to do with our meadery is we look at you know history mythology mm -hmm. um you know those old sources um but then i went to school for winemaking you know specifically right. to apply to mead making because I didn't want to have to reinvent the wheel in certain respects. There is a lot more um, technology and research have, has gone into the wine industry in the last hundred years than there has gone into the meat industry. We're slowly starting to catch up, but we are a long way from there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and on the argument of the traditional mead, you know, brewing honey by itself, it's a lot harder than when you put fruit in it. The, you know, the yeast loves the fruit. They love the nutrients. And he doesn't have that nutrients by mm. itself, you know? So my argument is probably they threw a lot of fruit in, a lot of grains, a lot of whatever was available because mm. it was gonna ferment better that way. Well, and they, a lot of them were short meats. They were quick fermenting, drunk while they were still fermenting, mm. um, you know, lower alcohol, uh, you know, something that they could put together in a few days. This long aging, you know, meads that we do these days, that's a lot of it's out of, we can, right. we have the time, we mm. have the, the privilege to be able to go, oh, I'm not going to drink this right now. I'm going to lay it down for a couple of years. Mm. That wasn't always the case, you know? Right. And I mean, a lot of why uh, the people back then did fermentation was a way to preserve their food. Uh, yep, I mean, exactly. a very, I mean, it's not talked about very often, but Vikings used to ferment shark meat to keep it preserved so that they could eat it later. I know yeah. that sounds very gross and the way they fermented it was actually by burying it. That makes sense, you know? And they did this so that they could preserve it because obviously Vikings, Scandinavians, the Irish, the Scottish, they were all nomads for a very long time. They traveled and there was times where food was scarce during their travels. Oh, and they lived in parts of the world that at that time were much colder, much harsher. Um, than they currently are. Mm -hmm. You know, you you had to survive on whatever you could. Right. Um, and a lot of times, you know, especially as you head into the Middle Ages, the water itself was not drinkable in a lot of areas. Right. Um, I mean, another you know? issue that popped up during that time was the Black Plague, and people had to mm -hmm. figure out how to survive during that huge infection, and they didn't have the science back then on yep. how to treat diseases like we do now. 
so I'm actually going to start going into some of the questions that I sent you uh, before. That way we can kind of move the conversation into a little bit more of that. Uh, okay. So the first question I'm going to ask you uh, is how did you first get into making me? To me, this is always a great story. Right. So uh, yeah, we were talking about heritage. Um, I'm Scots-Irish and German. Um, and I have a passion for Celtic mythology and history, uh, particularly pre-Roman Celtic history. Uh, uh, talking like Druid pagan time frame, right? Yeah, yeah, way back, way back. You know? I, I very much have that same passion and I understand yep. it very well. Yeah. So um, that passion and a number of other circumstances led me to living in the UK for a while. Oh, um, really? Yep. How, how was that? Because I, I, I still haven't it. been to Europe yet. Oh, and God, I loved it. Yeah, I, I would move back in a heartbeat. Um, if I could have afforded to stay, I would have. Um, and while I was living over there, um, I, I ran into a couple really good meets. Um, Lugashaw Winery um, in, in Britain is a fantastic winery that makes a really good mead. Um, and so I had some really, really good meads over there. And then I came back to the U.S. And while I am grateful for Chaucer's for having brought me back into popular awareness, um, it wasn't cutting the mustard. Mm-hmm. And uh, being the kind of person that I am, I thought, well, if I can't find it, I guess I'll make it. So I turned the end of the kitchen into a lab and started making meat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then life threw me a curveball and I needed to go back to school for something. And my friends were like, hey, you should, you should go make meat. You should do that. And I was like, okay, how would I do that exactly? So I uh, moved from Arizona up to Oregon um, almost eight years ago now and went back to school for winemaking. And in that process, reconnected um, with a guy from Wales and got um, involved in a project to start a meadery in Wales. And so while I was still in school um, and working with the UC Davis program, I went over to Wales and helped start a meadery over there. and you know things i learned a ton i learned an absolute ton um but got to the end of the project said thanks for all of the you know knowledge and experience that came out of this i think i'm gonna do my own thing and came back to the u.s and started orin more um actually opened the tasting room the same week i graduated from school (laughs) (laughs) nice nice um for me my I talked about it briefly already. It was very much just tracing back my heritage. So uh, mm-hmm. I had taken the 23andMe test because uh, mm-hmm. I was genuinely curious about exactly where my heritage lies. And uh, I've actually found that I share the same pathogen of an ancient Irish king. And then on top of that, I had the Sky- uh, Scottish heritage. I had Scandinavian and I started watching a lot of Viking shows, stuff like that. and. Game of Thrones as well. Yeah. I mean, everyone got into Game of Thrones, obviously. Yeah. And if yeah. you didn't, you should. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was watching all these shows that were talking about me, and I was seeing it mentioned so much that I was like, you know, I want to see how difficult this is. I'm sure I probably can do it. Because right? I'm the type of person that if I get interested in something, I will, I will tinker with it for a really long time. Even as a little kid, I would take my toys apart just to see how they worked. <laughs> That's how much of a tinkerer I am. I, I worked yeah. on aircraft electronics in the Marine Corps because it gave me a chance to tinker. Cool. And I started making mead, and my first few batches, I wasn't qu- 
quite doing it the right way. Uh, I was using just yeast nutrient, not GoFirm or Fermate or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but I joined the Modern Meat Makers group. And while I was in that group, I learned a lot really quickly, which yeah. is kind of normal for me when I put my heart into something is that I invest way too much in trying to figure out the knowledge. <laughs> I can totally appreciate that. I, I tend to be the same way of like, okay, once I latch onto something, I, I dig as deep as I can go with it. And that's one of the beautiful things about mead making, wine making, um, you can dig forever. Mm. And you I, know, I don't know that there's a way to hit bottom in terms of knowledge. Um, you know, there's I, constant, it constantly throws you curveballs. It constantly throws you like, oh, you thought you knew this batch. Now this year it's going to do something different. Yeah. You know? I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's a way to hit bottom, especially yeah. with mead, because there's constantly new information coming out. I mean, America right. personally just started using Kavik yeast, which is the type of yeast that a lot yeah. of Vikings used in the past. Yeah. And I personally have played around with it quite a bit. I've noticed that it's a very tricky yeast to work mm -hmm. with and you definitely have to find the right strain for the right recipe that you're working with. I think that applies to yeast in general. It, like, it does. It know, does. It, it's, there's, um, oh, I wish I can remember his name off the top of my head, uh, individual, they call him the yeast whisperer. Mm -hmm. um, and his specialty is, is yeast. He's out of Washington. Um, and he really put it like so beautifully to me at one point. He said, think of your yeast as your spice cabinet mm -hmm. you know you know it's not just your workhorse it is going to bring all of those esters all of those flavors and bouquet to your honey you know and if you've got the right yeast paired with the right honey it's going to be magical and the right fruit but if you've got the wrong combination it's not going to be go well it's not going to be what you want it to be so you know i think we you know have gotten a little i i for a while, there was definitely some blinders on in the meat industry of like, here's a handful of yeasts to use and not a whole lot of experimentation. I've seen that really change in the last few years and I'm really excited about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I really recommend, you know, play around, try a bunch of yeast, see what works, do your bench testing mm -hmm. and, and find out what what the pairings are that make the best mead, you know, yeah, I mean, for your style. I've found that for me personally, I don't use a lot of wine yeast. I actually use a lot of ale yeast because yep. for my recipes, they make more sense. Yeah, uh, no, I get that. While we're on this conversation though, I do feel like it's very important to mention the Scott Labs handbook because it's a great resource great to resources. look at, to yep. find out what esters you were going to get for that yep. yeast. And uh, it's also great to look at uh, what your optimal temperature is for your mm -hmm. yeast, things like that. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I'm a pH, nutrition, all of all those, and, all those parameters. And yeah. a lot of people may not know this, but you could actually download the Scott Labs handbook mm -hmm. for free. All you need to do yeah. is Google Scott Labs handbook and the, it's the first it's, link that pops up. Yep. Yeah. And there's actually a number of other labs that provide similar handbooks as well. Mm -hmm. uh, um, White Labs out of San Diego, mm -hmm. they provide yeah. it as well. Uh, and yeah. There's a few others I don't know off the top of my head, but mm -hmm. uh, I think Omega Yeast is in the process of working yeah. that right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of information out there. Yeah, and I mean... Um, there, there's constant updates to the science that goes behind yeast as well. Yeah. And I mean, there you 
can make yourself feel really stupid reading the information about yeast. You really can. I, it's, I see. I, I, I totally dig into that kind of stuff. You know, right, I've got right. a mind that, you know, I love that mead making is a great balance of art, craft, and science. Mm -hmm. You know, that you have each of those branches that if you bring them together in synergy, it's, it's truly magical. It really you know, is. I think no, if you ignore any one of those branches, then things end up lopsided. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, but, I'll be dead honest. I've I've made some meads that were complete failures, but I think there's something really good about that. You know, I think some of the meads that I made that I messed up mm -hmm. and had to figure out how to make drinkable um, were some of the most um, they were the, some of the biggest teaching moments in my in my mead making journey. You oh, know, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I totally I got a great agree. story about, you know, having 40 bottles of cork mead. Mm -hmm. How do you salvage that? You know, uh, there's a way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not a, not a fun one. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, not at all. Uh, I actually uh, personally made a uh, maple pecan cinnamon roll mead where I would put the maple in fermentation and I rushed this recipe very much because I was trying to get it into a competition. And uh -oh. I think one of the big things I learned from that is don't rush your process ever. No, because... no. Oh, I totally agree on that. It's better to take longer time. Maybe you don't hit the event that you wanted to get it into, but your first impressions out the gate make all the difference for people. Mm -hmm. And if you put out a flawed need, Oh man, I mean, I, you know, through the UC Davis program, I have tasted some meads, let me tell you, that uh, should never have seen the light of day. Yeah. You know? And um, they were from commercial meaderies. Yeah. Um, I, I specifically remember one that was a Capsomel that smelled like cheese and vomit. Ugh. Uh, I mean, yeah. I haven't yeah. had the chance to play with capsaicins in my mead yet. It is something yeah. I plan to do. It's just, I haven't got around to it yet. But uh, yeah. kind of going back to that maple pecan cinnamon roll mm -hmm. mead that I made, uh, the issues that did come up with that mead because I had rushed it was, for one, the clarity was absolutely terrible. Um, I didn't use a filter for the spices that I had put into it, uh, which was mainly the cinnamon. And because of that, it made it really cloudy and really thick. There was a lot of sediment from the cinnamon. Yeah, uh, I would imagine so. Also, at the time, I had used the boil method for the pecans, and I didn't get enough of the fat off the top, uh, uh, which also added to the clarity. The thing was, it didn't taste bad, but there were definitely ways that I could improve that mead. Yeah. And yeah. Learn taking that mead, shoving it into a competition after I had rushed it, and getting the notes back that I did on it. I mean, don't get me wrong, it hurt a little bit to see all the bad marks on it. But at the same time, they were a learning point that I absolutely I took absolutely. all of those little notes to heart, and I was like, okay, now I know how to make this better and fix yeah. it. And yep. uh, uh, one of the notes that I did get on it was that a lot of me makers are noticing with acer glints, it's actually better to add the maple syrup in secondary rather than trying to ferment it because you get more of the maple syrup flavoring. It makes sense, you know. I in that case, I might consider layering it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, doing some in primary and some in, in secondary. So you get both the integration that you get with the fermentation process and then also some of that more true to flavor mm -hmm. of the fermented um, 
of maple syrup, but we do that a lot with our meads where we'll do most of the fruit primary um, and then I will do a second um, infusion of the fruit in secondary mm. to then layer that fresh fruit flavor on top of the fermented fruit flavor and then you get that depth and complexity. Um, for secondary back sweetening, personally, I've come to really love using the Amaretti uh, extracts. Uh, mm -hmm. I find that they really add a lot of great color and flavoring. Mm -hmm. uh, you do kind of, I mean, adding any flavor in secondary, you got to be careful about adding too so, much. That's one of the big here's, things. Here's where I'm at with that. And this is where I, I go into my own style is we never, we don't back sweeten mm -hmm. with honey um, or, or juice. We may use, we use all whole fruit in our fermentations um, or we press on site. So I don't use juices, concentrates, purees. Um, it's from the fresh whole fruit. Mm -hmm. and, and so I don't use any of the Amaretti or any of those kind of um, syrups or flavorings or anything in our meats, period. Um, I'm a real purist on that. <laughs> but that's, again, there's... it's a personal choice. No, and um, I, I understand that. I have yeah. uh, some meats that I'm a purist on, like my Huckleberry yeah. Boucher. I yeah. do everything with whole fruit i caramelize the honey and that's honestly one of the best meads in my opinion that i have ever made yeah. uh that one actually got me into the second round of the mazer cup as a home brewer well which is not an easy feat and that was actually yeah. the first time i had ever entered the mazer so considering the first time i entered the mazer i got that far and scored so well to that's me great. it's definitely something i'm proud of and you should be absolutely that, that mead is definitely one i'm looking at having on our tap uh for sure uh the downside of that is the cost of huckleberries is not cheap <laughs> well yeah i mean any of these fresh fruits is not cheap right you know I mean, we're one of the reasons we moved up here is so we would have access to local farms you know mm. when we do our rainier cherry mead it's you know several hundred pounds of fresh rainier cherries from the farm down the street that we bring and press on site right you know and that's you know people look at our price point and we come in in the 30 dollar range and they're like well why is this more expensive than some of the other meats out there and i'm like well because of our sourcing because mm -hmm. we are farm direct because we are a berry direct because we are just so darn picky about it um and i i think the proof is in the pudding in the long run that when you start with quality you know ingredients to, from the get-go what you have is a, a much higher quality you know at the end of it right. not, not to say that there isn't a place for all of those other things and i think especially for the home brewer they certainly serve a lot of purposes um and and you got to decide what your bottom line is what your business plan is mm -hmm. um and, and make the choices that are right for you you know um Dan out at Stroud Meadery, you know, like he absolutely back sweetens with with juice, but he's really picky about where his juice comes from, mm -hmm. and he does a beautiful job with it. You know, like of any um, any session style mead, his are some of my favorites. There are right. some that you know have the body and the depth of of a traditional mead, and still the session style alcohol levels um, that I think is hard to come by in a lot of session style meads. You know, so you really just gotta decide, you know, what what's where do you plant your flag with your own bean making you know right. what is true to your story and your your way of approaching it i don't think there is a wrong way as long as what you're produ producing is good at the end of the day and people like it and want to buy it you know, right right it, you um know? 
I have used purees in the past for my mead, and yeah. uh, while it will make a great flavorful mead, the one thing I personally have noticed, and I, I probably will still use purees in the future, but yeah. the one thing I've personally noticed, and it's something that's been mentioned in the past, is using a puree will create a lot more loss in your yeah. mead. And if you're yeah. going to do it, you should be willing to make that sacrifice before. And that you... is a sacrifice that we make with some of our, I mean, making our peach meat. I talked about a headache and a half. I should probably add an extra 10, 15 bucks to the, the bottle price just for the headache of making that. Right, stuff. right. And I mean, you know, we press the peaches in a, in a wine press, you know, and we go low and slow and we get the juice out of it. You know, um, I have done it where I you know, did it with the whole fruit. And let me tell you, the mush at the bottom of the tank is taking up a lot of tank space. Um, it's it's oatmeal, it's awful, you know. Um, but the flavor that comes out of it is worth it at the end. You know, the, this is worth the squeeze. Um, but, you know, there's times where every year we get up to making the, the peach mead and I go, God, here we go. You know, this is gonna be a headache. It's right, and I mean, especially with peach being no. a stone fruit, you've got that big, uh, seed in the center of it that yep. creates more difficulty with it. Yep. Uh, I've actually uh, made a peach mead myself that was spiced, and I'm not going to mm -hmm. go into the full details of the recipe, but uh, I ended up using the uh, Vintner's Best uh, wine solution mm -hmm. that they have, and mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have a huge loss of uh, product from that. Yep. Um, and that's actually one of the few times I've had a Kavik yeast work excellent for me. Yeah. Uh, I will say the yeast that I used for that was a White Labs Kavik, which tends to have clean, it's a more clean ferment than a lot of the other ones that you'll see, uh, where it has very neutral esters that it produces. Uh, yeah. Whereas like if you go with the Omegas, they have like mango esters or tropical esters, things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And I think personally for me that clean ester uh, where it's neutral worked out better for that specific recipe than trying to use yeah. uh, the mango or uh, the tropical mead that Omega has. I'm not trying yeah. to suggest people not to use those meads, but it's to me using those yeast strains, you want to make sure you're building a recipe that revolves around the flavors the esters are going to promote. Yeah, and I think that's why, again, it's so key to know the yeast you're using with well, not to just throw something randomly in there. It's like, okay, here's here's the fruit I'm using, here's the honey profile, which is, you know, should be your first question. What's the profile of my honey? You right. know, is it a varietal honey? Is it a wildflower? Is it a mesquite? Is it an orange blossom? Each one of those is going to have a different flavor, mm -hmm. you know, and then pairing your next question is your yeast, you know, and your fruit. You know, which fruits are you going to use? Which yeasts are going to balance that well? We use the 71B for certain things because it breaks down malic acid. It smooths out some of the acids and gives a more aged feel to some of our meads. Um, there's other meads that I make that I want a more acid bite. I want that tartness that's going to come from a different yeast. Um, you know, so knowing what your yeast can do and what it's going to bring to the table is, is really key, mm. you know, um, and I, you know, every once in a while I have somebody come in here and, you know, say, oh, I make mead, you know, oh, how'd it go, you know, and they're using, you know, 
bread yeast. <laughs> it's just like, uh, I just cringe inside and go, well, you got to start somewhere, you know? I, I've started a conversation uh, recently about that subject, and somebody was trying to suggest that bread yeast and alcohol yeast were the same type of yeast. And they are technically the same species. That's yeah. what people need to understand. But yeah. species and strain are two completely different things. Two completely different things. And that's the thing is like, we are dealing, I mean, you know, hey, we have at our disposal, you know, entire books of yeasts from mm. labs that have, that's what they do yeah. is develop these strains. And that's a wonderful thing. It's, it's a really cool resource. You know, and then there's all the wild yeasts out there. And if you're brave enough to play with them, mm -hmm. there's some really cool stuff you can do. You know, it, it's a toss of the dice, though. Um, um, Bootleg Labs actually has a lot of wild yeast, mm -hmm. and they also give a great way to learn how to harvest wild yeast. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Uh, I've done wild yeast in the past using buckwheat honey because I figured if you're mm -hmm. going to do something weird and funky, go all out. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that turn out? <laughs> it actually was a really good uh, mead, cool. surprisingly. Yeah. It, uh, so I harvested the wild yeast off of uh, limes. Uh, I had a neighbor who had lime, a lime tree. And oh, I, cool. basically, I just scraped the peels off of the limes, mm -hmm. threw it in some go-firm to help promote uh, yep. the growing of the wild yeast. And then once I yep. saw signs of fermentation, I pulled the peels out, let it uh, continue to grow and populate for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then I still followed Tosna to promote that yeast to continue to grow, provide the nitrogen that the yeast needs. Yeah. And it was one of the weirdest, funkiest meads I've ever made, but I did that just for funsies. It was right? literally that, just for the experimentation process of it alone. Absolutely. When I was in Wales, uh, one of the guys that was on the project with me um, would go around to historical sites that used to be breweries that you during um, oh before the Reformation, you know, and a lot of them had been burnt to the ground, you know, by Henry VIII and stuff. But that they had been historical breweries, and he would take a petri dish and stick it under a rock for a couple of weeks and come back and get it and culture it and make a beer yeast out of it, mm -hmm. and then he design an entire beer around that yeast and release it as a historical historical beer um it was really cool talking to him really interesting you know fellow a lot of not a lot of knowledge there but what a fun thing you know to go around and you know because the yeast that were used by those traditional breweries are still in the environment they're still there and you know? if you do a lot of research on the kavik strains what, the way that those are harvested is they basically take a ring of wood and let the yeast grow on it and continue yeah. to use that yeast. It's a very yeah. old school style of harvesting yeah. yeast. But it's like the old the old beer sticks, right? Yeah, same, yeah. same process there. Yeah. And we've thankfully now found a way to harvest that yeast and put it into a lab to where we can make it a pure yeast, yeah. which... Uh, to me, it's really cool to see that ancient yeast grow into a modern yeast. And it's just right? now in America starting to be processed and used, yep. whereas out in Europe, they've been using it for years. Yeah, that's really cool. One of the um, wild fermentations we did here is <laughs> one of our first batches. We had uh, some Asian pears coming in and we were also going to be doing a pomegranate meat. And the pomegranate meat is the one of the only ones I do use juice on just because juicing pomegranates on the level that we do is just insane. Right. Um, yeah. So we get it from a farm down in California 
and our friend is growing the the Asian pears you know he was like yeah they're gonna be ready here soon they're gonna be you know he kept putting it off putting it off putting it off and I was like well we have a production schedule we can't you know like we gotta get something in the tank mm-hmm. you know let us know as soon as they're gonna be ready we'll move things over well literally the day that I got the juice he's like pears are ready mm-hmm. so I asked my business partner I said you know hey can you go stick the juice in the freezer you know we can come back to that we got to deal with the pears now and uh so he took the the juice and we did the pear and everything was great and got ready to do the pomegranate and uh he had stuck them in the fridge Oof. not the freezer Oof. yeah so i open it up and they're bubbling away and i'm yeah. like oh shit you know? <laughs> this is not good right so i tasted it and the profile was beautiful huh great flavor i mean really good and i said you know what you know here are our options we either dump out you know, close to a thousand dollars worth of pomegranate juice, or we run with this, you know? So we did, we ran with it. We put it in there, let it do its thing for a while. When it started to peter out, we added um, a a lab yeast to finish it off and it was gorgeous, you know? And (laughs) And I kind of wish I'd take on a culture because damn it, that was better than the years that came after. (laughs) uh, uh, I wish you had taken a culture too because I'm now interested in what strain it was. I wish you'd taken that culture and sent it to a lab so we could learn more about it. Me too, me too. You know, it was one of our first rounds of of production and I had so many other things on my plate at the time that it was just not... Not feasible to do it. You know, looking back, I'm like, ah, oh, darn it. I'm half tempted to next time I do the pomegranate to set us up bucket aside and see what happens, you know? Right. So I'm going to get back to uh, some of those questions that I had sent you previously. Uh, so this one is a real toughie for a lot of people, but it's always interesting to see the answer. Out of all of the meads you have had, excluding your own, what mm-hmm. would you say has left a lasting impression for you? God, there's so many good meaderies out there. Um... I really like what Open Guard's doing. Um, I've run some of his stuff recently. He's doing some beautiful work up there. Um, Hierophant has been doing some really good, fun stuff. Um, for, like I mentioned earlier, Stroud made a degree with the session styles. You know, I really think it depends on what kind of style of mead you're going for, right? Um, you know, so those would be three of my top ones. Uh, Sky River does a really beautiful traditional as well. Um, you know, down um, in Gold Coast now are doing sours that are mm-hmm. out of this world. Uh, really, really good. Golden Coast is actually somewhere I've visited a couple times while I was living out in San Diego. Uh, Chris, actually, uh, one of the workers that uh, mm-hmm. is at Golden Coast, he had sold me some clover uh, honey. Mm-hmm. That uh, it was so raw, it still had bee parts in it. That's how raw that it honey was. <laughs> so uh, I used that honey in a boche and I kind of picked out the bee parts as I was going. <laughs> and it turned out to be an amazing mead. And I've yeah. had, while I was there, he let me sample some of the meads and they were all really, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, he had one that was made with orange blossom. I don't remember the, uh, the exact recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned Avogard, which we've talked about a lot already in this episode. Yeah. I actually uh, recently uh, got some of his new uh, elderberry mead and absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. It's one of my favorites from him now that I've tried. Uh, he, at one point when I ordered um, some mead from him, he sent me a sample of this uh, blueberry cinnamon 
that mm. he hadn't even finished clearing yet and nice. it was amazing i took that to a, a meet geek society meeting yeah. that um <clears throat> billy at lost cause was doing which uh by the way anyone in the san diego area i do have to say if you can get involved with the meet geek society it's a great platform to learn from um, but I took that with me and I shared it and other people brought like shrams mead, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it yep. was a great time just sitting there yeah. sharing different meads and talking with people that had won Mazer awards in the area, yeah. learning yeah. what they did for their process. And, uh, it was really cool to me to be able to sit there and talk with fellow mead makers and have that opportunity to learn. And, Isn't um, that great? You know, it's... I have to say that the UCD Davis program is really great for that. You know, I've gotten mm. to work side by side with Ken Tram, um, Pete Bacolic, um, mm. Carver, you know, all sorts of Frank from down at Gold Coast. Um, there's, it's, you know, having that opportunity to exchange knowledge with other really high quality mead makers has mm. just, for our own business, done worlds of good for us, you know? Right. And um, I mean, um, I will say I personally, with Billy over at Lost Cause, pretty much every Boucher he's ever made, I absolutely love. <laughs> Especially his coffee Boucher. It's by far right. my favorite from Lost Cause. Yeah. But Billy, he's that weird guy that uses buckwheat <laughs> and somehow creates amazing mead with buckwheat right? honey. One of the funkiest types of honey it's you funky, can use. Funky honey. It's weird. Um, you know, I, I haven't given up playing around with it yet but i just it's not my favorite <laughs> it, it's a very very hard honey to work with how he yeah. manages to do such great things with it i will never know <laughs> but he he right? does amazing things with it and it's crazy to me that he does um but uh my next question for you would be out of all the meads you currently have in your tap room what would you say is your favorite Oh, that's hard. That's that's a hard one too. This is another um, hard question, and I know I, it is because at I, the homebrew level for me, it's always my next level. Like two, at the homebrew level for me, it's always the next mead that I'm working on. Right? Yeah. Um, so, I, I I'm gonna mention two because they're they're two of my favorites. Um, our Aphrodite's obsession is our hibiscus elderberry and lime. Ooh. I'm particularly proud of it. We've won a number of golds um, and also a bronze at the Mazer Cup on that one. Um, and it was an offshoot of my trip to Wales. Uh, when I got over there, they asked, originally they were going to use my recipes, and then I got there and they had decided to use somebody else's recipes. Mm. Um, but wanted me to manage the whole thing, reproduce the recipes. Anyway, long story short, they were like, oh, well, you can do some of your own recipes on the side as a test batch we'll, you know, to see how those go. Well, everybody loved them much more than some of the other things that, that were in process. And uh, when it went sideways, I was like, you know, my recipes are coming with me. They don't stay here. Um, and the fact that that one has gone on to, to win the kind of awards and acknowledgement that it has has been really kind of a... Um, a little bit of indication <laughs> right right and i mean <laughs> um and it is it's a great um stepping stone need for wine drinkers because it's got the tannins it's got the backbone um you know because we're such a wine centric area speaking to the wine folk and kind of teasing them into the mead world has been you know one of the big challenges mm -hmm. um you know the number of people that come in and go oh, i don't like mead well 
have you ever had it? No. Um, well, <laughs> let's start there, you know. Um, or they've had it and it's too syrupy sweet, you know. Um, or it's been bone dry and bitter, you know. So finding that that way to get meat out and approachable to a wider population than those of us that are kind of meat geeks, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. I know for me personally, with my APV, it normally hangs out around 15 to 20 percent. But mm. I also use enough flavoring to try to make sure that it's still sweet at that alcohol percentage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which ours run more in the wine range of 10 to 14 percent. We have one that's up closer to 16. Mm. Um, but I try to do them um, for our own style to be, you know, something you would drink with dinner. Um, something that you could pair with a meal or, you know, lots of, lots of different things like that. Um, and not just, you know, something that you would drink in very small amounts after dinner, um, as a dessert, you know, the other mead that I'm very proud of at the moment is our Ishkakao, which is a Peruvian dark chocolate and chipotle with an almond flour honey. You had mentioned this to me, uh, not too long ago, and I really am excited to try that in the near future. I have to say, you know, I share a lot of my knowledge of what I do um, pretty freely. Um, how I get the chocolate in this meat is my only trade secret. I will take that one to the grave. <laughs> I, I have a few secrets on my end. Like, mm-hmm. I'll share recipes, but, like, there's times where, like, the specific yeast strain that I use, I'm like, no, yep. I'm not sharing that. Yep, no, you know, you got to have a few. Um, and this, it tastes like dark chocolate, and it's perfectly clear. Mm-hmm. It's not muddy. It's not bitter. Um, it, it's like a Mexican hot chocolate. That dark spice kick, um, mm. without being overwhelming in any one direction. And uh, I mean, I've had people who take a sip of it and they're like, "Oh my God, it's straight up chocolate," you know. And so many of the chocolate beans I've run across out there just did not quite hit that and so I'm very proud of how this one came across um mm-hmm. we won gold at the first taste of Oregon on it and uh you know it, it's um selling out the door you know? yeah it, it's very hard to get that chocolate flavoring in a mead mm-hmm. I've I've found ways to do it but I'm holding on to those myself because right. yep. <laughs> I, yep. after learning how hard it was to get that flavoring, I'm not sharing yep. those secrets. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm right there with you. Like, I can tell you where I get the chocolate from. It comes from Lily Bell Farms down in Central Point. Right. Uh, they've got 10 best chocolate chocolatiers in the country a couple years in a row, and they're fantastic award-winning chocolate, and that's the chocolate in our mean. But other than that, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not sharing how I add chocolate into any of my meats. You could figure yeah. that one out on your own. <laughs> yep, yep. That's exactly how I feel. Um, yeah, so that one, I, you know, that took a lot of, of work and thinking and chewing and playing around to get that where I wanted it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our soul, our orange blossom traditional has won a number of awards. Um, I've had, uh, you know, Chrissy Marion Zippor, who wrote the book on meat and food pairing, said it was one of her favorite orange blossoms she'd ever tried. Mm-hmm. Um, you um, know, so we mentioned Ken Shram. I feel like it's important to mention the book Ken Shram wrote, oh, The Complete yeah. Mead Maker. It's an amazing read, and I mean, Robert Ratliff, he has the Let There Be Mead series. These are all great resources. I feel like yep. any mead maker should have, not just people at the homebrew level, but even people yeah. who are. Oh yeah running meteries they should always look back to these as a guideline not necessarily follow the exact recipe 
but mm -hmm. as a guideline and a stepping stone to help you create your own recipes. Yeah. That being said, there's a couple books that are not meat books that I highly recommend for anybody taking the leap from home meat making to something more serious. Mm -hmm. um, there is Techniques in Home Winemaking um, um, by Piambachi that really does a beautiful job of introducing all the lab techniques um, that you need at a production level or if you're going to go more serious um, in a way that, that helps you transition from that homemade making level of knowledge to something a lot more technical mm. uh, and then um, why let's see what is it uh, I can't remember the name of the other one is um, wine analysis and production uh, by Zoe Eklund is the other one um, and both of these are like bibles in the wine industry um you know especially the zoe book all of all the science you would ever want um take that and apply that with ken stram's book and suddenly you got a whole new world of possibility opening up mm. for you um so um, you know when, when i teach the making classes down at uc davis i always recommend those books because yes they are not your traditional mead making books but they will help you refine your process, especially with dealing with flaws, um, avoiding them, you know, and making a really fantastic product. Um, right. And um, outside of the mead side of it and looking more towards the business side of it, uh, I actually personally picked up the Starting a Business All in One for Dummies book, which has <laughs> six books in one all about starting a business. Excellent. Um, my brother himself is actually working on finishing his business degree. Uh, for me personally, I already have a degree in audio production, which helps with our marketing mm -hmm. side of it. Yep. And for us, I think combining our resources is really a huge help in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, I would definitely say uh, to anyone looking at making that leap uh, from the homebrew level to uh, the metery level, uh, the American Me Maker Association has a program that helps with that a lot as well. I'm actually about yeah. to get into that program. Um, you know, and, and Dan Stroud and I have talked about this um, quite a bit is, you know, if you're gonna do a metery, do a tasting room. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't try to make that leap without a tasting room. With all it's hit with the COVID, we would be dead in the water without our tasting room. Yeah, and I mean, we work for a local base, you know, and people try to grow too far too fast, and they they grow themselves to death. Yeah, you know, that's um, a common issue in not just mead, but pretty much every business that you could look at is if you try to grow too big too fast, you're going to end up putting yourself in the red, dead in the water, and you're going to have to close your doors. So yep. definitely be careful about expanding too fast. Try to keep yourself yep. small and expand when you absolutely have to expand. Yep. That's always kind of been exactly. my guideline. Yep. Um, so my next question for you would be if you could give just one piece of advice to somebody at the homebrew level making mm -hmm. mead, what would it be? Um, besides the ever-present sanitize, sanitize, sanitize. Yeah, yeah, which I mean is the one that everyone goes to. <laughs> That's the one everyone goes to. Um, know your yeast, mm -hmm. you know, like we've talked about. Know your yeast. Um, don't be afraid to mess it up, you know. Don't be afraid to mess up a batch and then have to figure out how to fix it. Um, you'll learn so much out of that process, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it sucks to dump a batch, but I would say don't dump first play around try to fix it first yeah and no. then if you have no other option well 
you know, hopefully you have a friend with a stilt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've, I've definitely made some terrible meads in my th in the past. I think everyone that's made mead has made at least that uh, one, at least that always one. one. Yeah. There are and, two. <laughs> or five, ten, somewhere five, along those lines. It, yeah, so. and I mean, I think the longer you go about doing it, the longer, or the more gets added to that list. Yeah. But the more you do it, the more you learn how to fix the ones that are messed up and yeah. what to do to make it better. Yeah, and be open to thinking outside the box. Mm -hmm. Very so, much, very um, much. You know, I, I can't beat the drum of science hard enough. You know, I, I still run into a lot of hearsay and um, pseudoscience on these mead boards. Mm. Um, it's getting better, but it's still out there. You know, there's still people who say, oh, you need to add potassium carbonate, you know, because your acids are going to drop too low and your yeast is going to struggle. Well, what kind of yeast are you using? A wine yeast. Have you looked at pHs of grapes and, and right. wine? It's not an issue. You know, right. so here you're flattening out your mead uh, and ending up with something super insipid with a process that really has no no need for, mm -hmm. you know. So do your research, learn the science, learn, you know, take your readings, um, take your notes. I mean, I am the worst about that. Mm -hmm. And I, I beat myself over the head until I've done it you know consistently because you always think you're going to remember and you never do i think <laughs> i think a lot of times uh us mean makers get so excited about that new batch that we're making that we forget mm -hmm. to record everything we're doing and then we yeah. have to beat ourselves in the head a little bit because of that oh yeah i've done it so many times <laughs> yeah I, I have too um i think uh as far as the pseudoscience goes and i'm kind of using quotations on that one too yeah. Uh, yep. One of the big things I like to try and suggest to people outside of the actual studies of the science going on is use yep. all five of your senses. Like, yes. look at your meat, yes. smell your meat, taste it, uh, yep. listen to what other people are saying. Yep. And then, like, with feel, take a good look at not just the taste of the meat, but the mouthfeel it gives yep. you. Yeah. And record and all of that. And then mm -hmm. from there, use that to better your process. Yeah. And I would say the other thing I would recommend, and I, I know this goes contrary to what a lot of people say, is taste your beat every day. Oh, I do Through too. the entire process, because you won't know what those curves are and mm -hmm. how it changes and grows if you don't taste it every day. And, you know, the number of batches that my partner has kept me from dumping down the drain, you know, that his mantra is wait two weeks. Yeah. It tastes horrible now. It, it's in its ugly ugly face you know mm. um wait two weeks yeah, and, and he's always right you there, know two weeks later it's golden there's um, some but, meads that i've personally have noticed like right after fermentation and secondary and all that is done they're really biting but yep. if you give them a good two weeks to a month just to sit yep. and age those meads will end up kind of sweetening on their own dialing yep. down and out of nowhere they go from this really bitey tastes like rocket fuel mead to being an amazing mead that naturally cleared better on its own once you just let it sit there and do its thing exactly and taste 10 times better as well and yep. there's something that a lot of people should look at with that is that just like wine the longer you let a mead age the sweeter it's going to taste later 
Well, I mean, yeah, sweeter or or more complex. Right. You know, that it, it grows in depth and complexity. Mm. Um, you know, that being said, if you know what you're doing and handle it well from the beginning, our meads take typically two months from beginning to bottle. And they are absolutely drinkable right out the gate. Right. I mean... And they just get better and better with time. And that's the way we design them is to be drinkable young and mm-hmm. age well. Yeah. I you mean, know, when you open some of those up that are six, eight years old, they are just absolutely out of this world. You know, and I've had, you know, major Cup judges that I've given my mead to and said, okay, tell me how old this is. And they're saying six months a year. And I'm like, well, it's two months old. We just bottled it last week. Right. And <laughs> I mean... For me, I've noticed there's definitely a possibility of making that mead uh, that only takes a month yep. to go from fermentation to bottle. Yep. But I personally like to take a little bit of time to bulk age rather than bottling right away. Yeah, and if you can, if you can do that and keep it safe and and keep it clean all the way through, you know, um, more power to it. I think it's a great thing if you can do some barrel aging, um, all of that. You know, it's always, you know, the difference between home brewing where you've got the time and you're not on anybody's schedule um, to, you know, when you're running a business, it's uh, you start looking at bottom line issues. And yeah, go, and you, you got to look know, at your market and mm-hmm. what you need to get out to your market. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we do a little bit of both. We do, you know, some barrel age stuff um, and others that are much quicker, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we try to find that balance so that we have the reserves that people really look forward to. Um, you know, they're a little higher price point. There are a lot, you know, that they have the benefits of the aging and the complexity that come with that. Um, and then stuff that is just super fresh and new and, and super tasty as it is and will just get better. Um, you know, and I think, again, we come back to the yeast and your process and how, you know, judging, okay, is this a, a mead that I want to age? You know, mm-hmm. your choice affects that. Um, is it something that I want you know, with a super neutral profile that I can just drink straight away? Mm-hmm. Um, those are all things to take into consideration in your process. Right. And uh, at the homebrew level, uh, if you are looking to do oaking, you can always just add an oak spiral. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could add oak chips and uh, Balls, you name it. Yeah, um, you could do a boil and then take that liquid of the boil to slowly add as well. That's another option. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if you're looking at doing oaking at the homebrew level, definitely look at the different types of oaks that are available. Because I mean, oh, yeah. you have French oak, you have Hungarian. There's other types of wood outside of oak you could also use and i mean they all add different types of flavor and it's really important to kind of get a good idea of what that oak is going to do to add to the flavor and And here's a little tip you know um sometimes you can call you know companies like bsg um and some of the other companies that are producing a lot of those oak um ingredients um and ask them for a sample pack mm-hmm. and they will send you one free of charge uh that is usually enough to keep a home brewer going for quite a while right um so you know that's one of the things that i used to play with when i was a home brewer you know as soon as i learned the, the tricks of the trade so to speak is i would call a lot of these companies for for samples on the regular and they will send you enough for you know one one um per bottle you know, so you can do a bench test of six, eight different kinds of oak, and they have enough for each for a 750 milliliter bottle to test run that. And you know, 
uh, going back briefly to the American Mean Makers Association, mm-hmm. they constantly are giving out discounts to help yeah, mean makers, not just on the homebrew level, but on yeah. the meadery level as well. Yep, absolutely. So the more you can look into the American Mean Makers Association, joining it and actually helping you, uh, yeah. in my opinion, the better that will help you to be as a mean maker. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're members of the American Bee Makers Association as well, and I can't recommend them enough. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, they are such a great resource on so many levels. Right. Um, uh, yeah. I'm also currently a maker or uh, a member of the American Homebrewers Association, mm-hmm. and the last two magazines of Zenergy have both talked about honey. Uh, being used to ferment. One was specifically just on honey being fermented. This, mm-hmm. The newest issue that I just got in was actually all on mead, which made me really excited as a mead yeah. maker to see the American Home Brewer Association talking so much about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so my next question for you would be, uh, does your meadery ship? And if you do, uh, where can people order your mead from? Um, so you can order us from our website, which is www.orenmoremead.com. Um, we have a store online there and we ship to over 32 different states. Um, so we, we have quite a, a broad range of distribution through that. Um, currently, California is not one of them because of COVID um, and some of their shipping issues. But um, there's many, many other states that we, we do ship to as well, including Arizona. <laughs> um, I all the way back to East New definitely York. will be ordering some of your meat here shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. And then in-state, we, we ship as well. We also do you know local delivery and pickup. And we have a meat club um, that you can also join online. Um, and yeah, we, we have a lot of, lot of options available. So lots um, of ways to get through. Actually, we just got approval to do, um, flights, um, to ship flights as well here, probably within the next week or so. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, yeah. now that I know about your mead club, uh, once we get up there, I'll definitely make sure that we join that way we can help <laughs> out where we can with your mead club as well. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be great. Excellent. Um, excellent. We kind of already talked about this this question, but uh, if you want to talk about it more, I think it'd be interesting. So, uh, what would you say is the most difficult mead you've uh, made so far? You mentioned that peach mead. Would you say that was your most difficult, or is there it's, another it's the one? In the butt, you know, yeah. um, in terms of you know dealing with the leaves and the fruit. I mean, we literally hand pick like you know close to a thousand pounds of peaches. Wow. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's I mean, that's the kind going. of level of dedication we're talking about. Um, one of the other ones that we really go above and beyond with is our Anya, mm-hmm. uh, which is our orange blossom honey mead, our soul, um, aged on 12 pounds of organic rose petals in a 50 gallon batch. That's um, a lot we, of rose petals you have to go and get. <laughs> yes. And so we literally hand pick two entire greenhouses of Queen Anne roses mm-hmm. to go into that 50 gallons, and we only make 50 gallons a year. Um, so that's definitely like one of those meads that you guys make that's limited supply there then, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, it's about 110 degrees in those greenhouses when we pick. Right. Um, yeah, it's not, and you know, you're, you're pushing through roses and come out completely like scratched up and sweating and, and, you know, but it's worth every, every bit of it, you know, mm. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, you know, we really do go for that craft level with right. our stuff you know um all of our spices our whole spices um you know 
like I said, it's all it's all farm direct, apiary direct. I know all my beekeepers personally, um, and I think that 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 shows in the end, you know. Okay, uh, I'm gonna ask you one more question, and then from there, I'm gonna see if there's anyone on Twitch that has asked anything. Uh, this question. If you're not comfortable answering it, I understand. It's just okay. something I think is uh, important to talk about right now. So uh, yeah. if you're comfortable answering, uh, what are some of the difficulties you've ran into as a business owner during COVID-19 and how has your meadery responded to that? And what are some of the things you've noticed have been working to help you? Um, you know, it's this has been hard. Uh, it's really been hard. We watched our income drop by two thirds um we do a lot of festivals and a lot of live music in our tasting room um and both of those disappeared overnight um you know i was talking about having a local base you know and one of the things from the very beginning i worked for blue dog uh meadery up in uh eugene for a while when i was in school and um he distributed to 11 different states um but if you walk down the street people didn't know who he was you know that there was a meadery in eugene right uh, and you know when we got ready you know when he closed his doors you know he said you know if i were ever do it again um i would do it the way you're planning with having a, a tasting room and 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 local um and i really think that's what saved us our our local base here in our town and we're in a small town twenty thousand people mm. um has really they really rallied to help keep us keep the doors open um we've done a lot more shipping uh we put a lot more your microphone got muted. Um, there it is. Sorry. That, uh, but we put a, put a lot more energy into our website. Uh, we've done things like um, the local delivery um, and coming up with the meat flights um, to go. Mm. And so, you know, we've had to really think outside the box. Okay, you know, what, what can we do right now? Uh, what, how can we meet the current needs um, of our customers and our clientele and then also reach out further? You know, we, we've been on a number of um, Facebook pages that are specifically for rent fairs, um, you know, to connect with the people who would normally find us at the fairs. So uh, there is a Renaissance fair that's going on in September that uh, I've actually talked with John about. He's going to see if he can go to it. If he can go, I already am planning to go myself and uh i've already talked about the possibility because i haven't had a chance to give john any of my mead yet yeah. of doing a bottle trade with him while we're there and just enjoying the fair together and uh i definitely will dress up in some sort of viking garb while i'm there uh i'm sure john if he does make it will do the same i mean he's got that big beard and has that viking look and constantly is doing that so uh, I we think we to be at Shrewsbury in September. As long as the fairs, you know, September on are going, we'll be there. Um, you know, a number of things have gotten pushed back, but you know, it, it's definitely I, I, it's a it's a tough call because it's on one hand, uh, I we need them to open back up, you know, right. financially, uh, and on the other hand, it's really freaking scary. Yeah, you have <laughs> to you have to look at the safety aspect of it, and yeah. opening up too fast could create more problems. And yeah. Um, me being the history nerd that I am, I've looked into a lot of the things that have happened in plagues in the past, and every time people have opened up too early, the second phase has always been worse. So yeah, it's something you have to heavily look into before yeah. 
opening up too fast, too quickly, and just creating more issues. So, yeah. it, I mean, luckily for us, um, our tasting room is the end of a warehouse. Um, mm. And so we were able to do the six foot distancing with our tables without actually losing much in the way of, of um, you know, table space and stuff. Uh, mm. So we got really blessed in that. I don't know how so many of these small tasting rooms are going to manage. Um, you know, we, we have the space to do the social distancing right and have it be safe. And we've got a lot of airflow and, and those sorts of things. But it's still really scary. Right. You right. know, it's, it's that balance between, you know, making sure we're safe and our clientele are safe and, and still staying afloat. Right. So, and, and I mean, like I said, this is a really tough question to talk about. And, yeah. Uh, I feel like even though it's a tough question, it's something that should be addressed so that not just you or me are aware of this. It's uh, something that all